Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Drew Voigt. We're at Harper Voigt in downtown McMinnville. Uh, it's November 5th, 2019. Drew, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we'll start with the, the biggest question of all, which is why wine? Okay, I uh, I was I, well, I went to I studied winemaking in college, but I, but the longer story I guess is I was born on a family farm in in California, um, and um, and knew I wanted to do something that was sort of applied. My, my father's a chemical engineer. My grandfather was a food scientist. My brother's a food scientist. Um, it's the somewhere where chemistry geek meets meets farmer or something like it is where we tend to end up somehow. Uh, something where you know I, we we all sort of are chemistry geeks but don't want to. Be in labs or in <laughs> academia and uh, and I went off to college to study chemical engineering like my father had uh, he, he ran sugar factories when I was a kid and I just remember really seeing what he did and being <clears throat> really it looked like an ideal thing to me that he was you know he's a he's a brilliant engineer and he goes to the, the plant every day and the chemists report to him and he oversees the production and he just made it all work and I thought that was fascinating and the connection to agriculture made a lot of sense to me, even though I didn't quite know where it was going to lead me. Um, and I figured out in my freshman year, I went to UC Davis, uh, enrolled there in, in, in 1993, and, or fall of 92, sorry, 92. And, um, uh, and I, after about a year in, I realized that I was probably headed towards a, uh, I wasn't enjoying it, first of all. I was taking computer programming classes and, and some things that I didn't, uh, that weren't, conducive to the things I wanted to do and saw where I was probably going to end up in something very different from where I intended, something <laughs> in oil or, you know, petrochemical plastic, something like that. So I, but I took a, it was in the summer of 93, a family friend down the street um, ran a local winery, a lar very large, um, they made 7 million cases a year the year <laughs> I worked there. It was owned by a by a, a family called Sebastiani, which was a founding uh, mm -hmm. California winery family who doesn't own any wineries anymore, but they did then. And this was their kind of entry level lower end. We made, the place made seven million cases with, and there wasn't a barrel in the place. It was uh, all giant tanks. It was a pre-prohibition co-op that had been converted into a winery over the years. Um, so funky old building and really cool. And I took a summer job there because the uh, you know friend of my parents from down the street, my little my little brother and their son were were best friends, and he gave myself and my best friend at the time a, a summer job, and uh, it paid better than anything else I could make in '93. And I thought, what the hell? Let's give it a shot, and I was. I was hooked immediately. I went, "Whoa, this is a job!" Now, I was the town is the town I was living. My parents live in was called Lodi, and it's south of Sacramento, a little ways. And my high school girlfriend was uh, was a, uh, her dad was a grape grower, but it was like it was like I couldn't see it. I couldn't. I didn't even. It was like I was unaware that that was a, a job or a real industry. Um, Venues were just places you sneak out to to make out with a girlfriend or drink beer with your friends or something. You know, and that's not. Uh, and I and I just went. Well, this is a job. You can do this. And then, and then it was chatting with the winemakers. I was. You know, it was a graveyard shift. Um, I didn't even call it an intern. It was just a harvest position. You know, on on a big team, pulling samples for the winemakers and bringing things into the lab, and chatting with them a little bit. And I was like, okay, almost all of these people went to the same school I'm at, and I don't like what I'm studying. 
And so I decided I'd take a class and see what I thought. And so that winter I took an, just an intro to wine class. And Davis has a general ed class that lots and lots of people take. It's just mm -hmm. kind of a wine appreciation, wine production class. And I was just, I'd never, I'd never taken a class I enjoyed as much as that. And I switched my major and that was it. So I worked harvests all through school in the Central Valley for another year and then one in Napa and one in Sonoma and then came back to the Central Valley after I finished college and worked another harvest. But in about two years in to the wine uh, study stuff, I tasted a bunch of Oregon wines from the early 90s. A, a, a classmate of mine was a who was a graduate student in viticulture, had worked what I think was the inaugural harvest for King Estate, which I think might have been 94 or maybe 93. Somewhere there. Somewhere right, in that yeah. range. Must have been 94. Um, and he came back with a bunch of Oregon wines. And I liked the idea of it. I have some, I had some relatives in Oregon. I visited a few times. It seemed appealing, but I didn't have any idea what Oregon wine even meant. And I didn't. I felt, I felt for wine through the production direction first. I felt for the making of it and the process of it, and then I learned to appreciate it later. Um, and so a little bit of a, of a different path, and my passion for wine came out of it later. Um, but these, the tasting notes from that um, tasting were, were well, they're, they're actually in the notebook, and I keep in the room here of the wines that I, that were, Arterberry and Arterberry's 91 Reserve. I keep the page open because it's uh, Rex Hill 91, Elk Cove 92 La Boheme, Veritas when that was where sure. Shalem ended sure. up being. Uh, yeah, Chateau Benoit because that was the thing, you know. Um, and and those those wines were they just they got me curious. And a couple of road trips up here um, turned into starting to look for work. After I did a harvest in in Russian River uh, as sparkling and Pinot Noir producer, in particular to 95. In particular, just to thought, well, I'm, I better wrap my brain around what this Pinot Noir thing is, because these wines are fascinating, but I don't know what, I don't know. And Pinot Noir on, in California at the time wasn't necessarily as important as it became later. I mean, there was certainly plenty of people focusing on it, but in the mid-90s, it was a less less of a thing. And uh, But I knew I wanted, at that point, I knew I'm going to, when I finish school, I'm going to move to Oregon, and I'm going to figure out how to make wine up there. And so I did. In I did a last harvest in California in '97. I moved here in '98, um, and uh, looked for work at a bunch of places. And I eventually got a job at a winery outside of Eugene called Hinman Sylvan Ridge mm -hmm. um, as the enologist, and then eventually assistant winemaker. Um, and did six almost six years there, um, and knew that. And Hinman Sylvan Ridge does uh, some Pinot Noir and a lot of Southern Oregon wines, and that that further solidified that I, I was specifically interested in Pinot Noir and I didn't really want to make the big reds from Southern Oregon and so I was starting to look for work up in the North Valley where opportunities were more uh, expansive, you know, where there were more opportunities. And in 2004, uh, I got offered the assistant winemaker position at Domain Serene. They were creating that position. It was the First time they'd added a, there was a, had been a head winemaker there for a while, Tony Reinders, and he hired me as his, his right arm as the Domain Serene brand was about to grow rather rapidly. Um, they were, a couple of the estate vineyards were coming online, and the new winery was, the new, the new winery at the time was, uh, had been used for a couple of years, but uh, they'd moved out of Carleton, and, uh, and so we were, it was part of that expansion was to add another another member of the winemaking team. I'll put that in my part. There we go. That's better. Uh, it keeps dropping. Um, and so I was on board there from 2004. Uh, a couple of years in, I uh, was promoted to associate winemaker and was, you know, in the winery basically 
it expanded rapidly. It was in multiples larger uh, than it than it had been in 2004, um, and really. It was kind of the formative job of my of my career. One of the I mean the luckiest thing that ever happened to me was in some ways was getting that opportunity because it was such a uh, dedicated, quality focused um, visionary. I'm a I'm a big fan of Ken and Grace. Um, they were I just they were they were wonderful to me, and they and I think they did a lot of amazing things in the in, in the industry. And and I and that really really changed that job changed my life. Uh, I left there in 2008. Um, in part because I wanted to have my own, my own, my own brand, and that's not how it works there. That's that's the way. That's the way. That's they want your focus when you're there. So I uh, accepted the head winemaker position at Shea Wine Cellars in 2008. And then, although I've jumped farther down the question, I didn't my full history, but I'll just um, what we prefer. That's great. And then I I was the head winemaker at Shea, where I was able to start my own label. In a transitionary period in 2008 and 9, I was able to. There was a shakeup in the winemaking team at Domain Serene after my departure, um, and I came back, so I oversaw the 2008 and 2009 harvests at Serene while still working at Shea and starting my own project, which was very busy, but uh, it was great. And Shea was a completely different operation, S small, one employee. It's just you. You know, if you're, if you're the winemaker there, you do everything in the winery yourself. And I got to work with one of those. Famous vineyard sites in Oregon, and, and uh, did that from 2008 to 12, uh, with my own project under my belt. At that point, I started in 09. So Harper Voigt started in 09, and then in 12, I left to start the, basically a custom wine making consulting business, which is what I operate today. We'll go back in and fill in those gaps. Sure, of course. Yeah, I, le I just that's that's awesome. I left <laughs> So I want to go back to the kind of the beginning of what you talked about mm -hmm. when you your very very first time working in a winery. You said you, you kind of grew up around around grapes without really being mm -hmm. without really understanding them. What was it about working that hooked you so immediately? What was it about the job that made it so appealing to you from the start? I guess it was just the, that the the crossover between the 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 chemistry and the biology of it um, crossing over into something agricultural, or we were creating this you know very tangible product that was locally sourced and it was again it was wasn't a this wasn't a high-end winery but it was but it was still seeing the crossover you could i liked the the energy of this being a seasonal position and i mean a, a seasonal um life you know a, a, and a very grounded very real one but that had all the things that i always loved which were you know i, I loved biochemistry and chemistry and biology and microbiology and who I, I i needed to do something that involved those things it's just where my where my uh, uh, kind of geeky mind kind of goes on stuff. And so it was that, it, it, it filled that niche that I knew I was looking for, I just didn't know what it would be. It was the, the connection between between those two things. And it, to me it was, just, it was basically, it was, also, it was just simply fun on some level, it was really fun. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Pinot Noir from the, from the very beginning, and even when you're in California, Pinot Noir, Again, what what about Pinot Noir? Why the appeal from that, and not so much the big reds and other other varieties? It was there was the subtlety of it. I mean, the taste in my those initial tasting notes were almost certainly not the first Pinots I'd ever tasted, but I had no familiarity with high end Pinot Noir. I just wouldn't have. I mean, probably had tasted it, you know, however many times. But um, it was the subtlety, it was the elegance of it, it was the fact that I was looking at these sort of, you know, medium color, medium bodied wines that were highly aromatic, and they just were different from they were they were elusive, they were subtle, they were. They were nuanced, um, and and they just seemed. I couldn't put my. I, just, I, I didn't understand it basically, mm -hmm. and I wanted to understand it more because it it it. Um, 
Yeah, because that was it. It was just that it was that it was that subtlety, that elegance, um, um, and that otherness that there's you know in the, there's you know there's red wines and then there's Pinot Noir and it's it, it's not it's not the same. It's it's fundamentally different. It's like it comes from a different kind of category and that just that just captivated me. And then I think I just became aware that the people that did it were pretty pretty driven by it. And I have a I have a relatively obsessive uh, <laughs> mindset. And uh, it, that just struck me as that just it just re it just resonated, or at least piqued my curiosity, which led me to investigate a little little more, and and then kind of led to this. You talked about coming to Serene as kind of the, the formative time for you as a, as a winemaker and, and yeah. in the industry. So tell me a little bit about uh, your experience there and and what it was exactly about it that that kind of told you you were on the right path or told you like the, the next step for you was your own label the next step for you was like tell me how you what about that experience kind of set you off in that direction um well i mean i think it was, i was i was already pretty i was you know very laser focused on wanting to make pinot noir and and the place i had been working had we'd made some very nice pinots but it really wasn't the overall focus at, at him in sylvan ridge um so at serene it was it was that focus i mean it was it was it was um you know some of the greatest vineyard sites in the Willamette Valley, made with you know in a facility with every toy and bell and whistle and every if you if you wanted something and you needed it and you could justify why it was important you got it uh, and that but you know the standards were very high they were but they were it was this it was that kind of uncompromising uh, kind of vision of it that that focus um, and then the results were yeah I saw what we were able to accomplish um, across all those vineyard holdings so yeah. While you were at Domain Serene, how did, how did you? It was kind of your introduction to the North Willamette Valley. What was uh, what was that like? What was it like being in the North Willamette Valley, and what was it like being at Domain Serene of all places as it was sort of taking off? What was the reaction from the industry? It was it was interesting. I mean, I had worked with some North Willamette fruit because Hinman and Silverridge used to source fruit from Elton and Eola Springs and some sites that you know went on that were important then and are you know in many ways more important now. But mm -hmm. no, it was it was fascinating to see yeah to see how you could. Yeah, just the just the the understanding the diversity of soil type and clone, and I mean every kind of different permutation of 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 Pinot Noir is you know is part of what that what Domaine Serene does. So I guess that was really really fascinating to see. Yeah, um, and and to see how you could scale that up um, and uh, and do that on a, on a high level on a significant volume. Sure. Yeah. You talk about the rapid growth. Uh, as Domain Serene was growing and as they were adding staff and adding all the stuff like that, uh, what was what, what, what was your takeaway from that? What did that sort of set you up for in, in the future? What was your, like, sorry, I'm going to start the question over. No, it's okay. not, not where I wanted that to go. Sure. Um, I'm curious, sort of, like, what, what your biggest takeaway was from Domain Serene. Like, what was it going through that stage of rapid growth and going through that stage of, like, laser focus on Pinot Noir? What did you take away from your time at Domain Serene? Uh, probably one of the big things I, that I learned from the operation in general and from and from Tony, who was my boss there, was um, uh, understanding some of these critical steps about making very careful vineyard decisions, making careful pick pick date choices, and in, in, in my opinion, at least, I think it's widely held that there's, there's there's there isn't a more important decision to make to set style with wines than. Than when you harvest, but there's also and, and the and the steps that lead up to that. Um, so I guess it was seeing that, understanding the degree to which, in my opinion, the, in my experience, that 
systems-based winemaking, things that, that, that stick to numerical parameters, um, th th things that, are, that take human choice, uh, nuanced creative choice out of it are not conducive to making wine on a high end. Um, you can do it and you can make an approximation of, of what high-end wine can, what high-end Pinot Noir can look like, but, it's, um, but, but, but numbers and certain sort of metrics and parameters, they, they, they're not predictive of the, of the style and quality. You have to make uh, a human interaction with the vineyard and the fruit. You have to make a nuanced decision, and it was seeing how, no matter as the brand grew, how we had to maintain the understanding what those critical points were, um, the importance of sight, um, the importance of understanding your site and your soil type and your microclimate on each site and, and 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 a big part of it I think was seeing how you understand the style of wine you want to make and then and then you have to work backwards from that basically and you know and call these shots that will yield the eventually the wine that you want and then making those connections between the eventual wine and, and, and where it has to begin. Um, and in and you know, with with again every kind of major permutation of vine age and mm -hmm. clone and Soil type and elevation and everything was it was all in that in that or a lot of it was in that cellar. Um, so it was an experience of yeah learning all those things. And how when it comes to learning those kinds of things, at what point do you become confident in making a decision like that? How do you learn a site? Uh, I don't know if you ever totally get totally confident about it. I second guess my I don't second guess myself. I I I I definitely I overthink it. I continue to to, to think it's a you know, you know I think a lot of people that end up getting. Uh, relative, hopefully, relatively good at something. Uh, still have a feeling that oh, I better, you know, I better stay on on my toes because this is this is tricky. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess it I just over the, the the four vintages I was there full time, and then the two or three there where I was a consultant in one capacity or another it was yeah, over that time. But it was it was a pretty quick. The learning curve at a place like that was 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 swift mm -hmm. um, because the standards are very high um, and there's a lot on the line. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about Shea a little bit then. Mm -hmm. Well, you talked about one of the foremost vineyard sites, one of the more famous vineyard sites in the state. Uh, a whole different kind of job for you, uh, the one-man show. So tell me about uh, pluses, minuses between those two, between being a part of a growing team at Domain Serene and being kind of the, the, lone, the lone wolf at, at Shea and, and sort of what you took away as what you preferred and what you, what you didn't like about those two spots. Uh, I knew I wanted to shift to something that was smaller, um, that was more hands-on. I could, I, I, that I was, I was, I enjoyed the work I did at Serene, but I wanted to get to where there was, there was less distance between what I was doing and every step of the process. And, um, um, and and also, like I said, I wanted I wanted to have my own production. So, I, I just I wanted to. It doesn't I want to say slow it down, but I wanted to shift it down in size. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, that that I didn't want to. I wanted to move move into a kind of a permanent kind of career in a in a small winery environment. Um, and then at Shea, it was yeah, just getting this kind of laser focus on one site. I mean, it's a big site. It's 140 acres and on two distinct hills, which mm -hmm. are it's not. It's not one vineyard. It's probably, I would say, it's between five and six distinct kind of portions or you know sections of a mm -hmm. uh, that are very different from one another with different soil types and different elevations and microclimates. Um, but it was then really drilling down deep then into into nuance, um, getting to know a site extremely well. I can I can. And I know a lot of the vineyard sites I work with now quite well. I you know learned to know a lot of, you know a lot of the sites that I worked with at Serene. Especially towards the tail end of my time there, but at Shea, it was you were on site. Um, you you knew every block. Like the, I can picture the contours of every block we worked with, and 
the numbers and you know, the numbers of the block and the clones or the planted and the different places that, that yielded different profiles and styles and 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 terroirs in the wine are are burned into my brain because it was so it was just so so incredibly focused on a on a single parcel and I liked that that tangible aspect of being you know I'd have three interns join me each year but the rest of the year it was it was just me and that that was very that was very it was extremely rewarding mm -hmm. to have that level of of connection to it. So as you were working your way kind of up the valley and to these various sites, uh, tell me about developing your winemaking philosophy. What maybe what you started with the winemaking philosophy, what you kind of thought it would be, and then sort of how it's progressed over the years. I started very, I think, with a very technical approach to things. It was just what my schooling had yielded, what my kind of natural mindset um, led me to, was just understanding how to make you know, clean sound wines, how to manage fermentations well, how to, how to understand how to do it, just a, a good job and, 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 and make good wines. And it was definitely a fairly, um, yeah, a, very, a, a fairly, fairly technical um, winemaker. And over the, over the years, I learned to get a lot looser with that and learned that if I, um, learning those lessons was important and then learning which, deciding which ones are best forgotten, which ones I, I'm better off riffing um, and going with intuition a little more. Um, I don't really, I don't play any musical instruments, so it's a weird analogy to use, but I think when you hear people that do, you know, that develop some musical skill in an area, technical proficiency has to, I think it has to precede uh, the step where you, where you uh, freeform, where you, where you riff, where you, where you improvise. Um, it's not, uh, just doing whatever comes to your mind is not improvisation. Improvisation has to have a, a fundamental strength of, of fundamentals below that, you know. And so I think that was. Uh, I'm glad it played out that way well for me. But that was. I, I went from being very technical to being to being much more, um, a little more high risk, high reward, a little more um, intuition based in stuff because I found that mm -hmm. the wines were better when you did that. You still need, the, I, well, I'm glad I have, I should say, it doesn't, everybody has a different approach. I'm glad I have a technical approach to it, but I, but I, but deciding which areas are, are best left to you know, spontaneous fermentation in Pinot Noirs, for example, something that I do uh, now, but that I did not early on. I was uncomfortable with it because I thought, oh, this is a step where I need to have control. Mm -hmm. And then I learned that seeding control of certain aspects of it yield better results. It's, it's you know, it's, it's something I'm not even sure I could have recognized early on, um, the, the, the subtlety that comes from, you know, from making some higher risk choices. So with higher risk choices also comes, I assume, some things that didn't work out so well. So tell me about the kind of the, sort of the bumps in the road along the way, things you maybe tried that didn't work out. Hmm. Thankfully, there haven't been too many, too many, uh, I mean, there's, there are misses where you, you, end up with a result that you are happy with, but that in context you feel like it, it could have gone better. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are, I think that, thankfully that's the majority of, of the, of those stories. Otherwise I think I wouldn't have had those jobs for the times that I did <laughs> if I had made a lot of errors. Um, um, but yeah, there are certainly, I mean, you, you just, you learn when you've overshot or undershot something where, you know, you've gone too far with whole cluster and the, and the wines haven't yielded um, the profile you want or that you've misunderstood the, um, the you know, the, the characteristics of a site, you know, the kinds of wines an individual vineyard wants to, wants to yield. Mm -hmm. You just learn a little bit. And the goal, I do this with my, I've got you know, a few full-time 
folks that work for me. Um, and uh, just, yeah, learning to be really, really critical of your own wines. Um, nobody hates my wines like I hate my wines. Nobody. Um, because that's the whole point. If you're not, if you, if you, if you, if you say, oh, I've got this, I know what I'm doing, uh, that's, uh, that I, I don't think that yields as good a result as where you are saying, well, it's really nice. I'm glad everybody likes it. It turned out really well. We should we should be doing better. Um, this is something that I always used to kind of tell my, I do tell my interns and my full time people, which I, I, I take this very seriously. It's that we have the opportunity in the Willamette Valley to be producing some of the finest wines of their type in the world. Um, we're not just able to make good Pinot Noirs that are solid in our region or in our marketplace because um, you know. We want we, we want we want wines to sell. We want them to 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 pay for it so we can keep doing this because you know. But but it's not about that. There's something much much higher on offer here. What it, but what it means is that from any individual parcel with some of the vineyards that we get to work with now that I get to work with for myself and for my clients because uh, I make wines for a bunch of different people right now. We're working with sites that are as good as basic virtually anything in the world as far as the possibility, the potential on these sites. So what that means is that you've got the possibility, it's, it's theoretical, there's no such thing as the best wine of, of in the world, let's say that's not a thing. It's, um, but that's really realistically what's on offer is in any individual vineyard block you're dealing with, any wine you're, you're making, any site you, you're, you're lucky enough to work with, you potentially are able to make something that is one of the finest things of its kind on this planet in this year. Um, and so to take that very seriously and carry that, you know, just take that really to heart um, and, 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 and care about it and pay attention to it. And, you know, then if you think, well, isn't this, isn't this good enough? You know, it's, cl it's cl close enough, right? And you think, did you, did you hear what we just said? Like, well, what's on the line is so much more than that. And so, you do, of course, you, 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 do, you do the extra work. Of course, you work harder at it. And, and you don't, you know, you, 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 uh, you, you receive that opportunity to do something that's that that could rise to that level. How many people get to do something like that in their work, in their lives? I mean, I, I don't, just to have that on offer. It's, 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 so I want people to feel that gratitude and that, and that lucky feeling and that fortunate feeling and then to, to carry that into the work every day. You bring that with you to the winery, you bring that with you to the vineyards. So without ever actually being able to be completely, <coughs> excuse me, completely satisfied with the wine you've made, has there ever been one you've create, made that was, you felt the best you possibly could have done that, no, that year. No, I mean, I I feel like we. I'm glad to say, I'm t to me. I hope I can say that with the wines we make for clients and I make for for Harper Voigt, that we we call the shot of the kind of wine we want to make. We make the decisions that lead to it, and we we nail the you know we stick the landing. We nail the shot um, the vast majority of the time. But if we if you don't make space for constant improvement then you know you have to always be saying well you know we can there's always there's no such thing as a, as perfection in, in in that regard but yes i've certainly i've certainly made a few things that i that uh that i'm very very pleased with. yeah <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of harper voigt let's talk about that it was something mm -hmm. you wanted from very early on you wanted to have your own label yeah. Tell me about the process of starting it and what your goals were when you started it um, well, I, I mean, I think it started by, by kind of two things, really re realizing I wanted a creative outlet that was entirely mine, um, um, that I loved making wine for employers, um, and I love making wine for clients now. It's most of what I do. It's 80% of the volume that I do now. It's what, it's what makes, helps me make payroll and pay the bills and all that, and, and I love it, and it's a permanent part of the, of the thing I want to do. But I want that singular project that's a completely creative 
project of, of my own. Um, and I also kind of sussed out in my, I want to say in my early 30s, I figured out that I was going to be a lot happier if I was self-employed. It's a good thing to learn about yourself at some point. That you're, I just was, I, I had, I had good relationships with people that I worked for, but that it's not in the long run. I wanted to be, I wanted to be in charge of my own destiny and choices. And so that was a mechanism of doing that. So it was twofold: getting that, that creative outlet, and then seeing that as as a, um, not a, not an exit strategy, but a next chapter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that that would be it would allow me to to have that and have that be a portion of a, of the business I wanted to build, which was a consulting and custom wine making business, um, as, well, as well as a, a very a small brand. My brand is quite small. So with the Harper Void, it's, it's less than a thousand cases, I believe. Just a smidge more, right? So yeah. Right around a thousand mm-hmm. cases. Yep. yep. So what is it you're going for with that production? Before we talk about your client work, sure. The Colts consulting work. What is it you're going for with those roughly thousand cases of wine a year? Um, well, I mean, uh, single vineyard Pinot Noir obviously is the focus. I, I wanted to be. Um, I wanted to work with small vineyard sites, vineyard sites that weren't, I sort of was reflecting uh, as I was leading up towards launching my project, which started in, in 09, that I had been really fortunate to work with with vineyards. I got paid to work with some of the, I got to work with Grace and Mark Bradford and Jerusalem Hill and Shea, and I got to, I got to do those things. That was my, you know, and, but for every great vineyard you know the name of, um, there are others with, with, Tremendous potential, um, uh, maybe equivalent or or even better in quality. Certainly different in style and terroir. They're out there, and maybe they're small, maybe they're young, maybe they're just the right people aren't behind those vineyards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted a brand that 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 took that as part of the inspiration for it and looked for those sites to mm-hmm. find them um, and help bring tremendous high quality vineyard sites. You know into to the family of vineyards that I get to work with. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a I think that was that was that was part of it. And it was yeah, it was just being able to to be a part of that. You know, this industry's been I've been here for 21, almost 22 years. Um and um and so it's it's half my life and um and the vast majority of my adult life and I'm and I but I wanted to to be participating in something that was a further exploration of the terroir of vineyards in the Willamette Valley. I wanted to do something that 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 brought more information and more understanding uh, to bear on it. So I deliberately chose not to source fruit from um, from vineyards with tremendous reputations. Uh, I understand why people would. It's a great way to get to get to get cachet to bring cachet to a brand when it's young. Is you should absolutely go and buy from Freedom Hill and Seven Springs and Temperance and Che and those. There's great ways to say that you know to, to have people pay attention to your work. But I, I deliberately wanted to do it differently and say, no, you haven't heard of the vineyards that I'm working with. Let me tell you about them. Mm. Let me tell you why I selected them, why, why I was, was fortunate enough to give the, have the opportunity to contract these sites and explain to you what, the, you know, what I see in the potential and then show you the wines we can make from it. So that was a big part of it. Um, and to have it be, this is just my own inquiry into the, I, this, you know, the Wine Valley is, is my home. It's my, it's my, it's my life's work is, is making Pinot Noir in this, in this valley. And I wanted my brand to be the, basically the, you know, the, the exercise in that inquiry into whether it's working from, you know, established neighborhoods and where we expect there to be wines of tremendous quality or working with vineyards that are off the beaten path and, and may not be what people are accustomed to. I wanted, I wanted to, to be engaged in that. So that was where it started, was on 
on Pinot Noir, and I just started with a few hundred cases of that. And then I was really captivated by uh, wines made from Pinot Blanc that I'd had. And so I just started making a small amount of barrel fermented Pinot Blanc, which has turned into a sizable portion of our brand, is doing a couple different iterations of barrel fermented Pinot Blanc. Uh, and then I just do a little tiny bit of some old vine Riesling, but Pinot is still where we're in front of mind. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Are there any sites you've discovered that you're particularly proud of, or uh, wines you've made from sites you're particularly proud of? Yeah, I mean, I think it's well. It started when my first contracted site um, in 2009, uh, which was 70% of my first cuvee, and, and has been a single vineyard wine for me ever since. In 09, I made just one blended wine, and 10 was, is a vineyard called Antiquum, um, and Antiquum's in the southern Willamette Valley. So. Um, in part because I was, well, so I was having worked in the South Willamette and seen that there were actually some tremendous sites in the South Willamette. It's just not necessarily things, not a lot of people are focused on, mm -hmm. on or aware of, of it um, down there. And there are a lot of vineyards, but quite a few vineyards down there are selling to larger volume buyers and are, are filling a different part of the market. Um, but based on my experience down there, I thought, wouldn't it be kind of cool to find something down there? And I was introduced through a, uh, a common a friend of mine uh, was the director of winemaking at King Estate at the time, um, and uh, his name is John Albin. He's a sparkling wine uh, specialist. He has a vineyard he planted in 1981 up in the Shehalem. He's somebody you should talk to. Planted a vineyard himself in 81 while he ran the Winehearts Brewery in downtown Portland, uh, and has his own uh, label mostly around sparkling wine um, after he switched. And he ran King Estate as a director of winemaking for a while, and I was visiting with him in 2008. And I said, hey, I mean, I said, I was asking John, hey, man, can I buy some fruit from, from you? I'd really love to work with your, these old vines. Uh, and I didn't that year, although I did later. Um, he said, you need, to, you need to meet this guy who has this vineyard called, it was called Old School Vineyard at the time, went through a name change. And he said, this guy is farming with draft horses and he's training sheep to not eat grape leaves during the growing season so that they graze the vineyard. And he is doing everything the hardest way, the most, the most demanding, most intensive way possible. He said, We'd, we, he said, I want all the fruit for King Estate or, or I'd buy the vineyard if I could, but he won't let us have all the fruit he wants. He wants to pivot towards selling to some people in the North Valley. And you're, and he said, you, you guys are going to, you guys are going to love each other. Um, you need to meet this guy. And I went down and visited him and signed a contract on a, some blocks right then. And he, that same year, he started selling to me. He started selling to Rex Hill. He started selling to Maggie and Antiquitera. Um, I don't think she gets fruit from there anymore, but she did for years. So he was trying to get his vineyard on the minds of people that were making ambitious um, choices and trying to make wines that he believed his site to be capable of making. Mm -hmm. So that was a fascinating one to see this a, it's a very distinctive site. The wines are unlike anything I've ever made anywhere else. Uh, conventional clones of Pinot Noir from conventional nursery materials that taste nothing like every assumption you think you have about how things work, where the, the early ripening clones ripen late, and the late ripening ones ripen early, and the flavors and the textures and the, and the chemistries and the profiles and the aromatics are all like, you know, there's, there's no, they, they, they're just, they're so distinctive. Um, and such a lesson in terroir, and what terroir really means, not, and not just a marketing word, but when you, you, so that was a fascinating one. So I continue to make wines from that vineyard ever since. So now, whatever it is, 11 vintages or whatever. Um, and then over the years, we've added a few others. Um, a BZ Vineyard, which is just above Seven Springs, I've been working with since it came online. Um, and uh, that's been a fascinating one um, in a neighborhood I wanted to, 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 uh, to source fruit from. And then I've been there since 2011 when the vineyard came online. 
Um, and then we've added to it over the years. Now I have two small sites that I lease uh, that we farm ourselves, uh, one in the Dundee Hills called Terra Rosa and one in uh, Yola Amity, which is called Filament, which is a real small, they're both like three acres. So. Back up for a second. Mm-hmm. When you when you said what terroir really means, not as a, not as a as a marketing word. Tell mm-hmm. me what you mean by that. What wh- how do you define what terroir means? A real personality, real real wines of, of tremendously distinct. With a wine that could come from nowhere else. Um, that, uh, that, that that there's that, that it, it it defies your your expectations, your preconceptions. Um, it does something that is. Distinctive. The voice of the vineyard is, is loud, basically, and not every site yields wines that are tremendously distinct from one another. I mean, there are sites that produce wines that are um, conventional, and that's not a negative thing. That just it just means that there are wines that they, that that tastes like that tastes like Oregon Pinot Noir, and it's, or it tastes like the clone that we expect, or something yeah. like that. And that's wonderful. That's the majority of what what wines are consumed by by Oregon wine just consumers in general. Um, but then there are sites that 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 kind of you know, grab you by the collar and make you listen and pay attention. Um, wines that effectively they're polar, they, they might be polarizing. Um, wines from that vineyard, for example, Antiquum, I could see how they, they might be. They they are different um, than, than other things and consistently so. Um, so that's that real sense of, of what you, it's kind of, you know when you see it and then there are sites where they just say, hey, listen, basically. Um, and and that's that's one of one of a few I've, I've uh, been lucky to work with over the years, for sure. So if someone opens a bottle of, of Harper Voigt and enjoys it, what is it you want that wine to tell them? What is it you want? How do you want it to communicate with the world? What is it you want a Harper Voigt bottle of wine to say? Um, well, I mean, in the single vineyard wines, we make a blended, you know, main release Pinot Noir that's a blend from multiple sites as well. But I want them, them to be wines of, of, I want them to be distinctive. Um, in general, the, the, um, the style that, that, I'm, that I've gravitated towards over the years, the style that I find myself naturally wanting to make decisions to reach is a relatively intense style. Um, it's a wines that are a little bigger, um, um, uh, that are more more structured. Also, and just I mean, not necessarily riper per se. Um, we work with a lot of high elevation sites that ripen relatively late, but wines that are intense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I like and and then but wines that have. Uh, a tremendous. I I overuse the word, but I use it all the time. In the word tension, I love tension in 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 wines. It's the the push and pull, the energy, the travel, the movement, the energy um, of the wine. The way a wine can enter, uh, in general, you know, enter with some intensity and some richness, and then you know close down again and move across the palate and feel like it's it's there's a dynamism. There's a there's a there's a there's a an energy and movement. And I think great wines can do that. I'm gonna stop dropping my mic one of these days. <laughs> Where to clip that? Just, there we go. Um, uh, yeah, that that sense of it, but it's that sense of, of tension um, where where the, the wine has stages across the palate. It, it it doesn't it doesn't kind of come onto the you know you don't smell it and then have it enter the palate and then go oh yeah that's what I expected that to taste like. I want this thing to, to travel and move um, and to feel this this wine introducing itself. Um, through the interplay of tannin and acidity and 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 the, the way structure uh, of wine um, kind of gives it that 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 freshness that and that and but tension is a better word than anything else mm-hmm. freshness you know is is a is a little more yeah it's just it's that yeah it's that sense of, of tension and, and energy 
with such a small production, how do you go about selling your wine and mar marketing your wine with, with such a small production and obviously a, a, a kind of a different model than, than some? Yeah, I sell, uh, well, we sell direct to consumer out of our space here where we're sitting right now, mm -hmm. um, but that's recent. So we always took appointments, but I, I'm, I've always made, since I, in this seven plus years, almost eight years that I've been out on my own, um, we've always been making wine in leased facilities. So I don't know. I don't own anything. I nothing. I don't. Uh, so everything is leased, um, and uh, so we're, we've always been in a facility that is not ours on some level. Even if we're the primary tenant in it, we had a, we were in Yamal Carlton for a number of years in the Beacon Hill facility, um, and then we moved uh, down to a facility. We're in two facilities in the Old Amity Hills. So I, but I sold by appointment, but now we do it here. And then I, I but most of it's distributed. Yeah. So I have I have uh, distributors in I think it's like fifteen or sixteen markets. Um, and so we try to spread it wide and thin. Um, and but I want I want my wines to be in fine dining restaurants and in the. In the, in the kinds of places where, you know, creative food is being served so that I, I'm hopefully making the kinds of wines that, that resonate with that kind of food. Um, so, the, so we distribute as a, as a result in, in uh, all around the country. Yeah. So you talked a bit about your, cons your other business, your consulting business, mm -hmm. and that was also something you had kind of planned on doing from, mm -hmm. from fairly early on. So tell me about getting, getting that started and, uh, and sort of finding your way into it and finding, finding clients to, to get it started. Yeah, well, I, I got sort of lucky. I knew I wanted to, to, to move into that, but I got sort of lucky in that in the, after I'd left to go to Shea and there was, uh, my, my help was needed at Serene in a, in a winemaking shake up there in 08 and, and in the subsequent years that I was sort of thrust into that role as a consulting winemaker, which was exactly what I wanted. It just, it just happened. And uh, so, um, so I did that. Um, and then, yeah, then in 2012, I decided I wanted to, to uh, in, before the, the 2012 vintage, um, during the, the winter, um, and decided I wanted to transition away from Shea so I could grow my brand a little more and take this on. So I just started kind of putting out feelers for who might be interested in custom winemaking uh, to start with, um, where we would secure a facility and have staff and make wines for small brands, you know, which is obviously a lot of brands do that and consumers don't always realize it, but a tremendous number of small brands are made in that kind of a way. And so I just started putting out feelers for that and then and also kind of quietly looking for for consulting work at the same time. Um, so it's just, yeah, just reaching out to people I knew and playing on the connections that I'd had. And so I think in 2012, uh, I got brought on as a as a winemaking consultant at Willamette Valley Vineyards right as I was transitioning out of um, of Shea, um, and I'm, it's, I was there for four four years, but I, I'm not, I don't work with them anymore. But I did, and so that was incredible. It was really fun uh, to work there. And then I, I think I only had I, I consulted at Shea for, for for a year. And in 2012, I was an, I was uh, a winemaking consultant, but there was a new head winemaker, so I collaborated with him a bit, and then uh, had I think four or five clients. Um, that I was able to uh, to get to come with me, and as we leased a facility just up the road from Shea and and operated there, um, and a few of them. Uh, well, Eminent Domain was my first client that I landed, uh, which was a, a very small brand at the time, um, with a vineyard that was just coming online up on Ribbon Ridge. But the the man who owns it, Jeff Meter, was the founder of Oregon Wine Services, so he was in the shipping fulfillment compliance business and has been a friend for years. And so he entrusted me with the project in 2012. 
I'm still connected to that one. He has his own winery now, and I'm, I just go up there and oversee his production in his facility. Um, but there were a few others as well. Some, I think one of which, uh, I don't know, one of them, they stopped making their brand, and I just took over their vineyard. But So I just had a small small set of, of just a few clients um, in the first year, and then it just sort of expanded from there. Tell me about the kind of services you you offer, or maybe what you thought you were offering, what you ended up actually doing. Is it is it full service? Is there a certain limit to what you do? No, it's it's full service. We wanted something that was that was completely. We really wanted to be a. The way I explain it to clients is offering. It's uh, you know not custom crush in the in the strictest sense, but something that's really more custom winemaking. That you know that. Um, owners that most of them, most of my clients own their own vineyards. Um, a few don't, but most of them do. Um, and they have vision. They have a concept. They have um, they have something they want to tell the world. They have they have something they want to bring to market, um, and they have a plan to bring those wines to market. And what they need is that middle piece. They need somebody to to help them understand how to how to whether they need input in the vineyard uh, or certainly from the winemaking side of things you know kind of managing all that so it's always that's always been full service um, and I always sort of like to kind of communicate it as that it's compromise free um, de uh, deliberately inefficient um, you know we're not turning tanks two or three times in a, in a season we're earmarking everybody's fermentation capacity and, and you know where we're going to you know, the, the vessels that we're going to use for their wines they're empty until the day we pick their lots and they're and they're empty again the, the day after we press and and go to barrel um, so that every decision is made um, purely with regard to quality not about efficiency and 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 logistics which is what estate small estate wineries do i mean that's i think the the, the distance between that i that i think I, I i intend to provide that i believe we do provide is that estate wine the estate winery model of focus and attention and 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 no decisions based on logistics just on wine quality can you bring that to bear on a custom winemaking environment um and so that's that's what we do tell me about you mentioned all these, all these the people you work for t tend to own what they have, tend to have a mm -hmm. vision, tend to, have, yeah. tend to have this mission in, in mind. How do you go about translating that from their head into the bottle? Uh, I mean, just lots of conversations of you know, trying my wines out of barrel, trying my other clients' wines out of barrel, trying commercial wines that were made from their fruit, or if they were with another winemaking operation before, trying the wines that they made, um, and having very honest, uh, critical conversations about um, you know, you know what what do you like, or more importantly, what what don't you like about this? What are the you know, and bring wines in that come from your, you know, from your neighbor's vineyards or from sites that, that are, are similar to yours or wines that you just like. I mean, clients will bring wines in and they'll say, oh, we love these four wineries and then I have to go, those are all nice. We can't make those from your vineyard. Your vineyard is super different than that, um, but that's cool. Um, <laughs> that's um, because that's you know a radically different site, uh, but lots and lots of conversation and which is what I think, again, it's applying the estate winery model to a custom service thing. That's what you do if you work for for if you have a full-time job as a winemaker for people with, you know, for um, Ken Grace Evanstad and Dick and Deirdre Shea are, they're successful business people with a tremendous amount of vision, but they're not winemakers. And I think they're, I think they're quick to, uh, I recall them all, they were always quick to say that they weren't. That's where, that's where they, they bring in mm -hmm. that. That's what they want um, you to provide. And 
So you have these conversations to say, what is it you're trying to accomplish? And just put it in your own words. Um, and then I'll ask follow-up questions and you say you like this style or that. Well, let's dig, let's drill down on that and try to figure out what do you mean when you say, you know, this profile or that and creating a common language um, uh, because you're, you're dealing with somebody who they know what they want, but you have to figure out how to, how to bridge that that language so you can help them understand what you can do and what they can do to, to get you closer to there. And that, that's, that, that, the le that lesson I learned as an employee winemaker applied very, has applied very well as a custom winemaking provider and a, and a consulting winemaker when, you know, where you can, you can sit down and say, you know, where, yeah, what do you, what do you like about what, what you're doing and where are you headed and just, but lots and lots of dialogue, lots of communication. Do you ever, do you ever are you concerned about or, or how do you combat the idea that you're you're making a similar product for a lot of people and trying to keep it all unique how do you keep each person's style unique and how do you keep from kind of just making the same wine for all your different clients the main one is don't fall into the thinking of, of boiling things down to systems or magic numbers or 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 or, um, or recipes or, or or formulas um, is if you embrace uh, you if you Pay attention to vineyard sites. Um, you, 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 it's, 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 it's kind of cheesy to say it this way, but I do mean it. You're listening to what the vineyard is telling you, uh, paying attention to what you're, what you're tasting and what you're seeing, um, and what the, the, you know, the young wines are, are telling you, and, and learning from that. But being very, having that feedback, um, so that you're really interacting, and then the wines will be different um, because the sites are different. Um, the ways that I think the ways you end up with sameness in wines. Um, is by applying formulaic approaches. Mm -hmm. Is by is by applying systems or, or dogma. I don't. I'm no fan of dogma in wine or anything else. And uh, and those kinds of things yield inconsistent. Not inconsistent isn't, isn't isn't the right term because they can be very consistent. Indistinct. Mm -hmm. I think the, the the to me the 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 thing I want to produce the least sort of a characteristic in a wine is for wine to be indistinct. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 so it's it's. It's you know paying attention to it and, and understanding you know, which which numbers, which observations, which which key bits of data and information that you're getting from from the vineyard from the season, which ones matter because some years you know you can you could collect five different number parameters about the chemistry of juice and and, and degree days and days since bloom and all these things that matter. You could gather. A hundred or a thousand different different parameters, observations, notes, metrics, mm -hmm. and only a small subset of them actually are predictive of what you're trying to accomplish in a given season. A, a bunch of them are noise, mm -hmm. and then in, in a subsequent year, different ones are noise. Uh, this year, the sugar number is not predictive of the style you want to make, or this year the acidities are something you're just going to have to realize they're not going to be what you wish you had, or this year you're going to, you're, the clones are going to ripen in a different order, or you're going to make your picking decisions with a different parameter in mind, you know, is, is seed color and seed browning as important this year as it is in, a, in another year? Um, is, you know, is whole cluster inclusion something that I should be doing more over less? Um, but, but listening and having that that feedback, having that that relationship with it, which again I think is what the estate—it I, I, was for me at least—that's what the estate winery model is. Mm -hmm. It's 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 spend the time, make those careful decisions 
don't boil it down to what you can write on an index card or, or, the, or the back of a napkin. Don't fall back on the, well, this is, we picked on this number of days since bloom or at this sugar level. That's, those, are, those are traps. Those are, those are the, the yield that I think can, they, 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 you lose focus on really trying to understand the site, know, know your material, know your site. So it sounds like from your perspective on things, there's quite a bit on, on, the, on your clients. They have to kind of bring forward a, a certain amount to the equation as well. Is, is there something mm -hmm. they, could, they could do or not do that would make you not want to have them as a, as a client? <laughs> uh, it's helpful. I, I like when they pay their bills on time. Um, that's nice. Um, no, I think it's, you know, we, we've, we've passed on working with projects where we just, I think if people think this is just going to be so fun, I'm going to start a winery and it's going to be so fun. And I think that it's, it's sort of like, it's not, not the way you mean it. It is fun. I love what I do, but I don't, but I think it, like, I, I imagine this is probably the way with, with any field. I don't, I've never, I've never known any other field. So I don't know, but um, people that love what they do, people look at it from the outside might look at it and think, I bet I know what's fun about that. I bet I know what you do all day. And they're wrong. They, that's not correct. Now, we love it for, for its own reasons, uh, for different reasons. So, so we have gotten, we have, um, we have had opportunities to work with projects that just don't seem like they understand that this is hard. This work is hard. It's going to consume a lot of capital. It's going to take a long time. Um, even making, uh, once we even get to where we're making the kinds of wines that you want, um, a, you have to figure out what that is, and then we have to get you there, and then you have to figure out how to take these wines to market um, and find a way to have these wines resonate with consumers in a, in a, in a crowded marketplace. And so when, we, when, I, when projects that look like vanity projects come my way, we, 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 uh, we just we pass. Mm -hmm. um, because they're, just, they're not going, that, that's not fun to me. That's not fun. I don't want to build up someone's inventory um, and, 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 and find out that now they just decided that the wine business is not the not the experience they thought they wanted because it isn't the experience if they come in as a purely a lifestyle consideration it's mm -hmm. it is harder than that mm -hmm. you have to do it for reasons that are that are that are deeper than that yeah but so that's what we're kind of looking for is basically um i feel very i feel a lot of gratitude i feel very fortunate that i get to work with some of the some of the the brands that we had a part in building some uh that no longer work with us because they took operations in-house, um, others that, that have stayed with us, others that have moved in different directions and, and taken it over themselves or, or switched to other winemaking solutions. We've, we've been, over the eight years I've been doing this, we've been able to launch more than 20 different brands, and uh, many of which are really, really telling a story, doing something exciting, doing something fun, and doing something that matters, uh, doing something that, that really matters in the marketplace. And I, that, that, I don't, the gratitude of that is not lost on me. I don't feel like I'm, um, I, I, I'm grateful for my clients far more, I suspect, or I want to be more than, 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 than the reverse. So what is something about winemaking that someone from the outside wouldn't expect? Hmm. Well, uh, I don't think they have any idea how hard sales is. Um, it, that wine sales is very hard uh, because you know, crafting your story, um, getting your message across is 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 difficult. Um, and just, you know, standing out in a crowded marketplace and having a story that that resonates with people, um, um, because you know, you know, I 
a story of I got rich in tech or something else, and so I did. That's not. A, I mean, you need a better story than that. You know, um, that's not going. And so there's. I think understanding what sales is really like, um, understanding the, the 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 timing of this, how you have to do this, you have to start a brand and, and make multiple vintages of wine before you even go to market with your first wines, and then at the end of the day, the amount you thought you were going to make on it is a lot smaller than than you thought you were going to. So, so those are some of the some of those 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 pitfalls, I guess. Um, um, and just yeah, that's that's part of it. So that's where you want to see people that are, that have that have an understanding of you know they've um, maybe they're farming their own grapes that helps, um, that, or they just have a, they have an understanding of, of what it's going to take. And the, this is a very long it's a long game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is building a brand is and, and it, you know the overnight success actually takes twenty years you know um, and a lot of work that goes into it. So so. So we're generally, hopefully, able to work with people that that have that understanding, and and we 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 keep our you know I we provide services in a very narrow range of, of stuff. It, you know, from I mean, it's a lot of it's from vine to bottle, but we don't do label design, we don't do sales and marketing. Uh, so when my clients ask about, you know, what do you think about this this distribution option, this packaging choice, um, this. Yeah, I, I'm always I'm a layperson in that field. I, I I can only speak with with I can only speak with what with to, to a degree I have any authority on anything, and that's a and that's for other people to decide, not for me. I it's in a very narrow band, and outside of that, I'm quick to say, do this. I mean, hire good people for those things. Mm-hmm. Hire I hired a la- great label designer. I hire a great website designer. I hired consultants in the areas where we need it. Know what you're good at, um, and be honest about those things, and then. Know what you're not good at, and then get and get out of your own way on that stuff. Mm-hmm. It helps. So we're just sort of wrapping up the 2019 vintage mm-hmm. right now. This is a slightly different year than we've had lately. Not uh-huh. not the super hot, dry years we've had. So tell me a little bit about what to expect from this year, and and whether this is something that more of a challenging, less challenging, more exciting, less exciting. Uh, it was more challenging for sure. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's it's good to be honest about that. Um, uh, September was wet. Um, we had a lot of rain in September. Uh, it is the kind of vintage that careful choices in the run-up to harvest, the choices that you make with crop load adjustments and your vineyard management practices, the choices you make in July and August when the sun is shining and everything seems like it's going to be fine, dictate whether you have the kind of fruit that can, that can survive a difficult end. And I think it's a lesson you learn by experiencing that. Uh, well, I mean, you know, I, mean, I, work, I worked for people who understood it, and I came to understand it myself. And then now I've experienced enough of those vintages where you were thrown a curveball that it, uh, you, that that a uh, the uh, the you don't get exactly what you what you what you want, um, and you have to make careful decisions about where to take risks and and where to where the risks are are too high and they don't they don't pay off. I think the, I I'm extremely happy with the wines in my cellar. Um, I think we make careful choices with regards to yield. I know we make careful choices with regards to yield and vineyard management practices so that we're setting ourselves up for the situation where the vintage doesn't go picture perfect at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it, about once every six or seven years around here, it doesn't. Uh, that's the nature of growing Pinot Noir in a, in a, in a cool climate. That's why, that's, that's why we bother to do it here. We don't do it because it's easy here. We do it because it's because it's hard and because it's elusive, and so you, about every six or seven years, you go, "Oh yeah, this is." I'm going to have to make you know. I'm, I'm going to have to go out and assess fruit that's just gotten rained on again, and I have to decide 
you know, what, how far away are we from getting the, the, you know, the, the flavors and the profiles that we need for this, um, and, and what is it going to take to, to get us there? So, yeah, a, a, a season with, with more challenges. As you look uh, sort of into the future for yourself, for Harper Voigt, for your consulting company, what, what do you see? What do you, what's wrong with Harper Voigt? What are you kind of hoping uh, to see it uh, turn into in the future? It's already there. It's, it's exactly where I want it. It's small and I'm not growing it. I don't, I don't want it to be any bigger. I can manage this, the, the operations and sales of the brand, the size it is. It means the market's where I sell. I, I do the sales calls. I, I get on the planes and go to do the the events and call in the restaurants. I think that's, I like that. I want, I want there to be as few um, layers, as few, a few degrees of separation between me and the end consumer as possible. Um, and so I keep it small like that on purpose so that I can wrap my arms around the entire project. So, so my own brand is, is exactly where it is. I mean, we may, I'd love to move into having more, uh, you know, we've been, we've taken on the lease positions in a few vineyards where we're controlling uh, the site. I'd love to move into more lease positions or, or ownership mm -hmm. in vineyards over time, but then it's, that's just about solidifying control. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, it's, it's, that's where it is. And then I, the, the, the consulting and custom services are, they're incredibly satisfying. Um, whether it's consulting on projects that, that want to see a change, um, and you get to come in and, and be a, a you know, a, a, a driver of that change. Mm -hmm. And I have, I have a couple of those now, um, in their own facilities, um, or whether it's new brands that want to come to market and there's, it's incredibly, yeah, it's very satisfying. So I want to keep doing that and probably really not growing much in, in that regard. I think we'll just continue to see clients take their own operations in house and effectively grow up and fly the, fly away from the nest sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, bring in other new, New projects and kind of serve as a, you know, a little bit of an incubator and a, and a helper and a, um, uh, and a you know a, a part of bringing exciting new ultra premium ambitious uh, projects to market. I know Pinot Noir, especially in Pinot Blanc, secondary was kind of your dri mm -hmm. yeah. driving force. Have you thought about expanding out much beyond beyond that, especially in your own brand or in in others? Not in mine. I make I make an old vine Riesling um, because I get the I get uh, I have a contract on the on the old vines at Marsh, the 1970, the oldest block at, at Marsh in Dundee, and I got when I got offered that fruit in 2012, I thought, well, you got to take that. I mean, first of all, what, what winemaker doesn't love Riesling? Every winemaker loves Riesling, um, and it's the oldest vines in the county. Um, and I thought, oh, you get asked that once. Is the next person that they call or the person that they, then that contract will be snapped up forever. So I do that, but it's a very small amount. No, in my own brand, I'm, I'm, I, I, that's it. I, I'm making sparkling wine, but from Pinot Blanc. And I'm making still Pinot Blanc in a couple of different style iterations, different aging regimes. Uh, and, uh, and then Pinot Noir. For clients, we do uh, sparkling wines. We do Pinot Noir rosés. I don't make a rosé for Harper Voigt, but we do for clients Chardonnay. Um, Quite a few different Chardonnays, uh, Riesling. Um, we've done Sauvignon Blanc. We've done Yakima Valley Grenache. We've done Southern Oregon stuff. We've done, I mean, kind of a lot of different things. Um, but Pinot Noir is, is the lion's share. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really the only variety I really feel driven to make for myself. It's the only thing I, I really, I have ever really wanted, really with all my being, wanted to, wanted to make. So. And it hasn't gone away. Not at all. It has I, that that the my enthusiasm for it. It's not. It really hasn't dimmed in the slightest. I, I the the uh, there's a kind of a sig like it's like a tag a little signature line motto whatever that goes. It's in our email signatures on for the for Harper Voigt, and it's a it's a phrase coined by my 
my now ex-wife, uh, which was obsessively crafted wines, and, and obsessive is the right word for it, because I just, I just got in, I got driven by making these wines, and I just don't want to stop. That's it. So I just do it, and I, I never. It really hasn't waned at all. If anything, it's gotten stronger. The degree to which I feel driven by it, and you, you can't. It maybe it's probably like this in a lot of fields. It's probably like this in a lot of different varieties. I can only speak to the one I've dedicated myself to, but you can keep digging deeper and deeper into trying to understand the terroir of Pinot Noir and the Willamette Valley, and it's a bottomless thing of, of every answer opens, asks 10 new questions, and then each answer to those questions asks 10, 10, 10 more. Um, and you, 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 you're learning, you know, you're learning more and more, but, but it's really less and less, because you just continue to expand the, the, the questions and the and the and the understanding of it, so it it doesn't it it doesn't get boring. It has never never been boring. You know even more about what you don't know every, every time. Exactly every time, right? Yeah, yeah. If you if you're I think if you're listening to it and you're paying attention, to it, I think I think that is I think that is the case. It just leads you to a slightly more refined understanding of how you can do that a little bit better, and you do it a little bit better, and you do it a little bit better, ideally, and you come to understand it a little more all the time. It, it doesn't. Um, like, yeah, again, I think if if somebody. If somebody hits a stage where they think they've got it all figured out, A, I'm suspect, because I don't think anything really works like that. But B, good for you, but I, that's not me. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like that. It, I, the, the, I just want to go further with it and see how much more we can learn, how much more can we come to understand um, these sites and understand what these vineyards can do and the kind of wines that this place can make. Because this is it's a pretty short list of places on the planet that can make Pinot Noir on the level that when you can, I mean, depending on who you ask, you can kind of on somewhere between one and two hands how many regions in the world can do this. And we're, we're on the first hand, let's put it you know, at, at a minimum. And that's, that's a, an amazing opportunity. So there's, there's no, yeah, there's no end to the, my curiosity about it. Let's talk about the industry a little bit more at a kind of a macro level here. Mm -hmm. You've been, you said, mentioned 20-ish years now. Yeah, 1998. So yeah, yeah almost tw almost 20, 22, 22. Yeah. Uh, tell me about what uh, sort of the it, it, besides just pure size. What are mm -hmm. the, the sort of the biggest changes you've seen in the Oregon wine industry? Um, I mean, a tremendous amount. I mean, I, it, it's it's hard to recognize it sometimes. So what it used to be, the number of wineries, the um, the expansion of vineyard plantings into regions that didn't have very many or any at all, um, kind of exploring new terroirs and subregions of the valley. Um, the quality level in terms of what we're able to accomplish in in this valley, consistent con in terms of consistency, the kind of wines we can make in challenging vintages. I think vintages like 2013 and 2019 and 2011 for different reasons or 2007. Those kinds of vintages in 20 or 25 or 30 years ago yielded very different results uh, with a lot more inconsistency, a lot more uh, uh, wines that didn't reach the, the caliber of the wines that we've learned how to make. So just an improvement in our, in our, our skills, our, our understanding of the, of the region. And certainly just that, the sophistication of the, the, the technology, the, um, uh, the, the, sales, the sales and marketing, um, all that certainly has changed a lot. And, the, and then the degree to which the, the Consumers around the world and in this country have really come to understand what what we're doing here. It's been it's been great to see. I think it's one of those. I'm glad that for a lot of people, the Willamette Valley makes the best Pinot Noirs in North America. I think some of us knew that a long time ago, and other people got that realization later on. But but the, the last five or five or seven years have been a, a sea change mm -hmm. in terms of the seriousness with which, with, with which we're taken. Um, you know, I think just the the, 
you know, the French-backed projects that have come into the valley, whether it's, you know, Domain Druin many, many years ago or the wave of them that have come later are, are I think they're wonderful things. I think it's an amazing uh, validation of, I don't know how many generations we are into this, how many waves of, I mean, it doesn't know how you count it, three, four, five, whatever it is. I don't know which one I'm in, but I'm in there somewhere and there's a bunch before me and some after. But the culmination of all that work leading to this region really finally being acknowledged as something that that is in pretty rarefied air. Um, I think that's great. So yeah, I guess that, that's that, that's the thing. I, I guess I, I really see that the, the the degree to which we're taken seriously, um, and um, and the validation we get, and then just yeah, the now the the interest from American wine companies that didn't do business in Oregon before, or international brands, you know, foreign French brands that that, that where do they want to be? They want to be here. Uh, of all the places, they you know they want to be here, mm -hmm. and I think that's I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome. What about as you look ahead, say ten years in the future for Oregon wine? What do you see coming, uh, both good, bad, uh, otherwise? What are you? What are you, What's kind of on the horizon? I, I presume more of the same. I suspect we'll just continue to, to improve how we understand our vineyard sites and how we understand the style of wines that we can make and, and know our our region. Um, I, I imagine that the, you know, the amount of tourism we see is going to, I mean, of course it's going to continue and this is going to become a place that some of what I, what I loved about this place in the past is going to be less visible. Um, you know, the fact that I do, like I do all my own tastings with consumers by appointment in the living room of an old house is a thing that isn't, I don't know if that's possible. I don't know if that's really going to happen. It, it, it doesn't happen in Napa or some parts of Sonoma and things like that anymore. And maybe it's not going to happen here. I think that, that's a bit of a loss. I think that some of the distance between the, the producer and the consumer will be a loss from, from the consumer standpoint. But uh, I think some of it's probably inevitable. Um, but yeah, I suppose probably to be yeah, more of the same, where we just we just continue to get better and better at, at doing what we do. And, and you know, the best, I think some of the best wines Oregon's made have been in the last five or ten years. Um, and not to take away from the wines made before by any means, but the degree to which we can consistently do this um, and make distinctive personality-driven wines. That and we, we, it's impressive how much progress we've made in the 22 years I've been here. The, the, the progress that's been made as far as the, the quality at every tier, the value for for, for the consumers can can uh, can take advantage of, is. It's tremendous. I think we're, we, I mean, we are proud of what we've all accomplished as a group and, yeah. Are there any obstacles on the horizon that you're concerned about? Um, I mean, certainly, I mean, climate change is a, is a complex subject that I don't know any, I don't think anybody, we don't have an understanding of exactly what it's going to do to this region. Um, the last 10 or 12 years don't show a trend line that's necessarily, I mean, we've had largely warmer seasons, but we've also had two record-breaking cold and two record-breaking wet years in the same span from 2010 to, to now. Um, you know, 10 and 11 coldest and then wet years. I mean, so, I mean, we could just be going into a period of more inconsistency where we just have to refine how we, how we farm. I think we're, I think we're, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we probably, we have to sort of continue to kind of understand how we, um, you know, the kind of the plant materials that we choose, the clonal options that we plant, and how do we how do we in, 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 uh, set ourselves up well for changes in the future? But but 
Um, but yeah, that's, that's one, but one I don't think anybody has any answers to, because the answer isn't as simple as plant at higher elevations or plant colder sites. That's simply not, that's just not as simple as that. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's an aspect of it. But st I think staying, I, I like the idea of the Oregon industry doing as much as it can to stay, to stay relevant, to stay um, approachable, to stay honest and real and feel really like grounded and not too much of a, I, it would be, if this, if, if, um, if Highway 99 West starts to look like uh, Highway 29 going up the middle of Napa, um, that, I, that, that won't make me happy. I think we should do what we can to guard ourselves against pricing ourselves out of the market that where regular consumers can, can reach us. Um, we didn't, we, you know, this, I don't want this to be a region that where all we make is $300 bottles of wine for, for the ultra wealthy to, to collect and, and, and show off and tro I don't I don't I don't want to make trophies I want to make real wines mm -hmm. you know um, I think I think it's a region I think we I think we should try to keep that authenticity as much as we can so someone came to you and said they were interested in joining the Oregon wine industry today what would your words of wisdom be to them um I mean if they're coming from the from the industry elsewhere uh, I think I think I would I think I'd encourage them. I think it's an amazing place to make wine. I think it's an amazing opportunity. It's a, a community that's tremendously supportive, uh, that shares information. I'm sure there are other regions that do that as well, but this place is, you know, we, we really do collaborate. We do really work together as an, as an industry. So I think I'd encourage them to, to take it seriously, but to, you know, if they really understand that, you know, we're, we're doing this in a region where it is more challenging. Um, you can come up here and make less money and work harder, um, but you get to do something that is that is, it's pretty special. Um, yeah, I guess that's what I would if they were if they were if they understood the industry. With anybody that asks me about wanting to get into the wine industry, um, it's usually sort of you know should really, you know, work a harvest or you know take a, a, a an entry level position in in the field and really understand if you really like it or not because it I don't know that you really know from the outside what the work is really like. Um, again, I love what I do, but I love it in a way that I, I wouldn't have been able to understand what it was really like, um, what harvest is like, what, what wine sales are like, what what running a wine business is. You know, so to, to put a toe in the water and see how you really feel. And if you think it's gonna be romantic and fun, it isn't either one of those things in the strictest sense. It's it's fascinating and it's amazing and it's a lot of things, but, but it's um, not romantic. <laughs> all the questions that I have for you today. Uh, is there anything I should have asked that I didn't, anything we didn't cover that we should have talked about? Kind of a... I don't think so. I don't know if you covered the areas that seemed, or that, yeah, I think it's good. Excellent. Well, well, thank you so much for thank your you. time today, for your thoughts, your candor. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.